This is an ABC podcast. Yeah, we were there that day when they come through. You know, what we spotted coming in was just totally new to us and eerie. That first couple of minutes, just thinking, you know, what do we got? What are, what are we going to do? So when they saw the big white sails, they thought they were low-lying clouds. Low-lying clouds tells us that the spirit of the dead are coming back. The people of this cove may not recognise those white sails for what they are, but the instinct is right. Death is coming. One of the old leaders in the early 1900s talks about message sticks being brought up from the the Aboriginal people from the south coast to, to let us know that this strange object was coming up the coastline. As this floating object with big, billowing, cloud-like sails gets closer to the shore, the people on the land notice something. On board, something is moving. When they saw the sailors coming, climbing up the marks, they thought, were they guerrilla or possums climbing up trees? Those clouds drift towards the beach and then suddenly stop. So they come into the bay and they anchor. The villagers living along that cove decide now is the time to move behind the tree line, out of sight. All but two men. You know, two warriors stayed there while the rest of them hid in the bush because they sensed that, you know, something was about to happen and I'm sure, you know, it did. Two warriors, one old, one young, standing alone on the beach. And they can see that something is emerging into the water from beneath those white sails. The long boats were then rowed to, to that point over there. They actually soon realised that they, they weren't animals, but they were white. They actually thought they were um, spirits of the dead. And these white-skinned creatures are heading to the shore, to the warriors on the beach. Yeah, I just always think about those feelings, what they have, you know, the scared feelings and, and uh, you know, not knowing what's going to happen. What does happen next will have repercussions for 250 years. And so it's as they approach, there's a kind of a standoff. And that's when the, the two warriors challenge the landing and actually make it clear that it's not okay to come ashore. They threw spears and stones at them as that warning. And the reaction by the British was similar to what they've done in other places. And that was to fire upon them. One was hit in the leg. They retrieved back and grabbed a shield. And then obviously more muskets were fired and and they were overwhelmed and At that point, the shield was dropped and collected. Collected and taken back to those billowing sails of that ship. The vessel would only stay in that bay for another eight days before disappearing north up the coast. A ship that bore the name Endeavour. 
Congratulations, Australia. You just got discovered by the British. In the days of the Empire, objects were taken. Objects that tell us about the world we have today. My name is Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole. Right now, I am about five hours south of Sydney, and I'm driving through, I think, what can best be described as a cathedral of black and burnt-out trees. And I'm on my way to investigate something that I first heard about back in the UK. So this whole project started with historian Alice Proctor. Uh, Both of us were born in Australia, but we were sitting in this Hogwartsian London library. And so I asked her, what was the Australian object I should look for? I would say the Gwigal Shield, um, which you might be familiar with. It uh, is in the British Museum collection. And apparently it was picked up by Captain Cook and Joseph Banks on their first day at what is now Botany Bay. The kind of text of the label in the British Museum says, when Cook landed at Botany Bay in 1770, two men came forward with spears. Cook fired shot, hitting a man in the leg. The men retreated, dropping a shield. It has been suggested, but not confirmed, that this is that shield first contacts in the Pacific were often tense and violent. Really doesn't reflect all that great on Captain Cook, now does it? No, it doesn't. But I mean, this was his kind of main negotiating tactic. He would often fire a gun and deal with the consequences rather than attempt to meet people in a peaceful and maybe friendly way. It's, uh, It's a pretty violent interaction. You know, they don't say what happened, but if you're an Indigenous person in 1770 and you've just been shot by a British naval officer, you're going to die of your injuries, right? So there's this whole kind of history of undescribed violence. Just from a material point of view, a shield is a defensive weapon. And when that is the first object of the first encounter between Indigenous people on the east coast of Australia and British invading arrivals, and the the kind of relic of that moment is a shield, that says so much because it's how you protect yourself. It's a really symbolic object. But it's not just the symbolism. There is an actual campaign to bring that shield back to Australia. It's being led by a man called Rodney Kelly, who is the descendant of one of the people that was on that beach that day. And so he has a very legitimate claim to wanting this shield back. And Rodney lives somewhere through this cathedral of trees. Walking up the hill to Rodney's place, he's leaning on the veranda, looking out at the singed landscape all around us. Yeah, no, we're at Cabago. No, we just had a recent bushfire. This whole town was just surrounded in in flames and four or five o'clock in the morning, it was like 40, 50 degrees, just a whole mountain range. Rodney has traced his ancestry through his great-great-grandmother back to the Gweagle clan, the people who lived on what we now call Botany Bay. Rodney claims he has a baptism record linking her to a warrior by the name of Cumin. And that was the man who was standing there that day um, with the spears and shield in 1770 when Cook arrived. So we were the first first people there. So, yeah, that's why I'm so into trying to get these um, items back for, for my ancestors because, you know, something terrible happened to them. According to Rodney, it was in 2016 that he found his moment. 
So for a brief second, that shield did return to Australia as part of an exhibition in Canberra. And so Rodney, he hopped in his car, drove a couple of hours to see it face to face. Now it's about a metre tall, you know, it's not that wide. It looks very, very old. Imagine something almost the shape of an almond, but large enough to cover your torso and made of this faded red wood bearing centuries of wear and tear. You know, when you, when you see it, you can see ochre on it. So you can see white ochre, how it's been burnt, charcoal on it. And right in the middle, just big enough to put your thumb through, is a hole. Yeah, it's been shot, you know, with a, with a projectile of, of some type, you know. It's just been shot. It was on the final day of the exhibition when Rodney said he did something no one expected. In the middle of the museum in Canberra, in front of a crowd, he staked his claim. And we're here today to let everybody know that we want the return of our ancestors' shield. It does not belong to the British. It does not belong to the British Museum. These artefacts, they belong in their own homeland. Rodney went on to demand that all artefacts currently held by the British Museum were to be returned within 90 days. That didn't happen. Um, as soon as I'd done that protest, yeah, they just, you know, locked it away, packed it up and straight back to England. But as it flew back to England, the shield had someone on its tail. They knew I was coming. Rodney decided to follow the shield back to the UK and this time make his claim on British soil. I'd organised a meeting with the British Museum. How was that conversation? I'd rocked up with a QC, Queen's <laughs> Council, um, and they didn't like what, what he had to say. They spoke nicely to me, but the QC comes out and he talks about um, the law and stuff. You could just see their faces and they snap back to him. And it was good seeing, you know, the British Museum sort of, you know, stepping back and... and Whoa, you know, like, yeah, that was a a good time. Now, it's worth pointing out here that Rodney doesn't want to claim the Gweagle Shield back for himself, per se. He just wants the shield in an Australian museum. Uh, It would mean a lot to have the shield back. For Aboriginal people, it's our symbol of resistance. He's not seeking the shield for sort of personal gain. It's very much about trying to put it on display and use it to tell that story and have it available to young people and school kids and people who can actually connect to that history but connect to it in Australia in the right sort of place for it. Rodney brought a lawyer with him, but in reality, he needed to bring more than half of the UK Parliament because the British Museum collection is protected by the British Museum Act. So it's politically protected. And in order to change the repatriation policy, there'd have to be a change of law. And the fact is that no one's done that. It's, it's hard to bring a case against these institutions. In some cases, you have to do things like prove cultural continuity, which is to say this object means the same thing to me as it did to my ancestors 200 years ago, which is very difficult to do when those 200 years have been shaped by, um, you know, colonialism or white supremacy and things like that. It's often really hard to say this means the same to me as it did to my ancestor. If you're continuous culture is interrupted by a colonial force coming in and reshaping a country, which being Australian, we would have no idea about whatsoever. I don't even know how you begin to execute that line of, uh, of argument. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically impossible. 
So instead, on his now multiple crowdfunded visits to the UK, Rodney goes kind of rogue. And I started thinking, you know, let's start a stolen goods tour. Let's bring other cultures in and, and let's make this tour just to educate people about items in this museum and, and they're getting educated by the people where those items are from. The first one, a um, couple of hundred people. Wait, so you're walking around the British Museum with a couple of hundred people in tow, pointing out all the things that are stolen. <laughs> is, that what you, is that how this went down? Yeah, so there was myself, security guards just everywhere, going crazy. This seal means a lot to me and my people. It tells me and my people who we are and where we come from. Not long after all this goes down, Rodney's back in Australia and he gets some disturbing news. It seems the shield is no longer in its cabinet. I had a person um, message me and say, look, the shield's not on display, there's something's going on. So I you know, asked what's going on and, and yeah, they've been starting to work on questioning, you know, is the shield really from 1770 and you know, this and that, so. Wait, so you do your speech, pull all this attention, and then a year after that, it disappears from, from display and they start investigating whether or not it is, in fact, the thing that, that you claim. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. The timing of it is all just so wrong. Like, once somebody comes along and says, you know, this belongs to the people, then they turn around and say, oh, oh well, you know, this might not belong to, you know, this might not be the shield from 1770. Why didn't they do this research prior to somebody making a claim on it? Yeah. That's a very good and very fair question. After decades of sitting quietly in the British Museum, why did they choose now to ask the question of whether it really was the Gweagle shield? Well, you know, people keep calling it the Gweagle Shield, you know, I understand that. And I keep telling people, you know, its origin is still, there's still a lot of speculation around it. Okay, it's recording. This is the voice of Dr Shane Williams. Um, I worked in universities for quite a while, teaching Indigenous studies. He's a Dungadi and Darawal man from the La Perouse area around Botany Bay. That's Gweagle country. And when he saw that shield for the first time, Shane had a very different reaction to Rodney. It looked unusually peculiar in terms of its shape and colour. So it was a red colour and um, I was never aware of any red shields, you know, in the Botany Bay area. So I actually asked the people in the British Museum if they could have somebody test the wood because, you know, small bits of it fall off over time anyway, you know. And they came back and they said it was made from a red mangrove. Here's the problem. Red mangrove? Doesn't grow in Sydney Basin. It doesn't start growing until you get as far as, yeah, where uh, Port Macquarie is. That's just under 400 kilometres north. And it's in abundance up in uh, places like Ballina. 700 kilometres north of Sydney. So um, it's very likely that Shield's origin is somewhere between Port Macquarie and far north Queensland. So that wood could have come from anywhere along a 
1,400 kilometre stretch of coastland, but probably not from Botany Bay. When the Endeavour sailed away from that cove after eight days, it sailed north. And we know that Cook, you know, when he left this part of the country, he um, hit a reef off Townsville and he anchored at what's now called Endeavour River at a place called Cooktown, named after him, of course. And he was there for a good six weeks, you know. So it's very likely that the shield is from there. Now, for Rodney Kelly, and I should say he is not alone in this view, there is a very simple explanation for all of this. That shield was a trade. We had a very sophisticated, like, trading network. So I've had people tell me about stories of tribes from that region travelling to Sydney to trade. That's still passed on now. So there is no reason why a piece of wood that comes from up there shouldn't be um, in Sydney through, through the trade route. Um, it's very hard to reconstruct trade networks, um, particularly from around the sort of Sydney coastal region, but it is a possibility. There's one uh, sort of issue if they are already making shields around Botany Bay from a different type of mangrove, why would you need to trade in a red mangrove one unless it has, you know, perhaps other ceremonial significance. So, I mean, that's a possibility. But, I mean, all these things are uh, possibilities. I've come to the nation's capital of Canberra to meet Maria Nugent. So when Shane and Rodney raised questions about the origins of the shield, the museum did indeed launch their own investigation. One of the resulting papers was co-written by Dr Nugent, this lady here. Uh, My name's Maria Nugent and I'm a historian at the ANU. While Maria Nugent is non-Indigenous, she has been working in this area for decades. (laughs) She does, however choose her words very, very carefully. All right, so here's a, here's a not at all thorny question. Uh, does Rodney's claims, in your view, stack up? I, I, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to... Well, like... Mm. <laughs> So you probably include all of that umming and ahhing. I think so, yeah. I think we'll definitely include that. I think that sums up just how difficult it is to make a pronouncement like this. So which aspects of Rodney's claim are we interested in? In truth, Maria is 100% right to be wary because the more you look into claims about this shield, the murkier the picture gets. There is that hole in the shield that many people tell me is evidence of of a musket being fired. What am I missing? It's it's been looked at kind of quite closely. Some of that work was done by the British Museum when Shane and other people in the La Perouse Aboriginal community asked the British Museum to do more research to see whether there might be traces, I think, of gunpowder or something. And the conclusion was no. A guy from uh, the army, he uh, actually examined the hole and he's actually fired these sorts of muskets as well. And uh, he said it's not a, from a musket 
Otherwise, it would have blasted the back of the shield out, like any other bullet does, you know. It puts a hole in something, but it blows the back out. Well, there was none of that, you know. We felt strongly enough from that sort of evidence that it's not a hole made from gunshot. Um, A lot of journalists and non-journalists alike would like to believe that that hole is actually a bullet hole. However, there's many shields that have similar puncher holes in them. The kind of question for me is, <laughs> if we proved it one way or the other, would it really make any difference to its symbolic um, significance, which it's acquired over the last 50 and 60 years and in a more intensive way in the last uh, five to ten years? Shields, uh, early shields are incredibly valuable. <laughs> you know, but Whether it's that important shield, we may not know for a while. No, I think we should try and loosen this idea that things associated with Cook have greater value than other things. Well, I guess because Cook himself occupies such an important part of the white narrative of Australia, that the idea that there is an artefact from the moment of his first encounter with Indigenous Australians. Like, I mean, I do get why that has narrative importance. Am I, like, am I getting this horribly wrong? So one way to answer that is to compare the interest in the shield uh, and the interest in the spears. So we know that Cook and his men took what, because they record in their journals that they took 40 or 50. So we know that four of those spears survive also from that encounter. So why do you think they're treated differently? Like, why is there so much more debate around a shield than there is around the spears? Why do you think that is? So the fact that it's a shield. A shield is a symbol of, of defence. So it, it really does embody or engender that idea that he was an assault that you had to defend yourself against. There's a sense that there are conquerors and victims. So it, it fits much more uh, into that. Um, image that we have. But that's what repatriation does, right? It means that when claims are made, things need to be looked at more closely. If you go to that shoreline where the Endeavour made first contact today, it's quiet. You know, usually we're sitting here and you're hearing planes fly over us every couple of minutes. You're seeing container ships coming in left, right and centre. Thanks to the pandemic, the nearby Sydney airport and shipping terminal have ground to a virtual halt. We've seen a lot of more um, aquatic activity, a lot of more birds and stuff activity around our, our cultural area. Whereas the people, they're nowhere to be seen. You know, just hearing no activity, you could close your eyes and really think, hey, this is what it would have been 250 years ago. For this brief moment in time, you get this flash of an undiscovered country, a bay that would have been alive with stingrays, dolphins and more. Buriburi, which is our spirit ancestor, the humpback whale as well, would have come in and they used to rest on the beaches and at night they would actually sing. It was like they were singing to each other. Um, so my name's Nolene Timbury. I'm the chairperson of the La Perouse Local Aboriginal Land Council. Uh, my name's Ray Ingray. I'm from the La Perouse Aboriginal community as well as Nolene. Um, I'm the deputy chairperson of the La Perouse Local Aboriginal Land Council and chairperson of the Guljaga Foundation. Nolene and Ray are, well, just like Rodney, They are descendants of the people of this cove. 
but they've arrived at a slightly different view of the shield. So for me, I guess I'm I'm not convinced that the shield on display in the British Museum is the shield that was collected here 250 years ago, but I'm not convinced that it's not either. It's it's still a little bit contentious for me. I guess the point that I really want to get to is if the British Museum, what they're um, testing and what their opinion is that it's not the Gweagle Shield, as it's been called, firstly, they've got it displayed incorrectly. Secondly, it probably loses a bit of value for them because mm. it's not, if, if they're saying it's not the, sh- the shield that was collected at that time. Um, but for us, it's, it's still a 250-year-old plus shield and it hasn't lost that cultural value for us. It is a, a sort of strong cultural item that talks about our history and our connection and our cultural ties to this land. In case you're wondering, we did actually spend weeks trying to get the British Museum to explain why they thought the shield should remain their property. And their argument is, well, it's basically the same argument they use for everything. I think it's important that such an object tells a story of the British and of Aboriginal Australia. And to me personally, I think it's very important that the very deep history of Australia is understood not just in Australia, but around the world. And by having exhibits of material in Britain, it does disseminate that history. That's Gay Sculthorpe, Oceania Director with the British Museum, talking to me from London. And yes, she is Australian and an Indigenous woman herself. Thing is, even Nolene standing at Botany Bay, as much as she wants the shield returned back to Australia, even she acknowledges that it does bind the two countries together. If it wasn't taken at that time and if it wasn't held in organisations such as the British Museum, it wouldn't be around today. Mm. It would have disintegrated. We wouldn't have it. But we do, or they do. It is a complicated situation that it's intricately tried to the story of dispossession in this country, but the only reason it exists is because the British took it, right? It is a very complicated time to find ourselves in. If they hadn't have taken it, then it wouldn't be here. But if they hadn't have come, then it wouldn't have, you know. Probably wouldn't have been as significant, right? Exactly. So there's, it's, you know, it's it's a marker of a time in history. According to Nolene and Ray, once again, Maria Nugent was right. I have been fixating on the wrong object. If you want a symbol of dispossession on this land, it's not the shield. It was the spears that Cook and his men stole by the dozens. If you look at our people lived off this water, bundling all those spears, 40 to 50 spears up, that's just like shutting down a Woolworths or a Coles these days because they needed that to spear fish, they needed that to survive and feed their families. Right. The spears are food. Spears are the, the key to keeping a community going, right? Absolutely. Yeah, realistically, they were taking away a food source. So wait, so where am I looking here? Where am I looking? Through the, through the pier there, through the wharf there. Nolene and Ray have taken me up to the water line because they want to show me something. There's a red or bright orange boy. Oh, yeah. If you stand right on the edge of this water, you can still see the spot those sails came to a halt. You can see it through there, oh, that yeah. big one, that yeah, great yeah, big right. one, yeah. It's right there in the middle. That's the marker, yep. The Endeavour's anchor point has been marked in the water. 
And unfortunately, every four years, they either replace the boy or they just paint it with a brighter red colour and it just keeps annoying us. But that's all right. Yeah, make it nice and bright for us. (laughs) (laughs) For a long time, that bobbing red marker and a sullen obelisk dedicated to Captain Cook were really the, the main and most obvious signals of the importance of this place. But almost nothing that speaks of the loss, of the resistance. That is until quite recently. They're sitting on the rock. They're made of bronze, so they're starting to change in colour a bit. In April 2020, as most of us were in some form of lockdown, a handful of objects were placed around this bay. A series of statues and artworks. Uh, Looks like a a holdout boat. Also looks like a whale. The remains of a whale on its back. Mm. Rising out of the water are these seven U-shaped twists of metal. They symbolise those same humpback whales that once beached here. They're also based on the size and shape of the endeavour itself. There's also some durable wording and there's also some quotes from Cook's own diary. It's really, um, it's almost brutal in a way. It's almost like sharp metal skeleton sticking out of the water. There's something sad about it. It's, there's mixed feelings, this place. This is where uh, we were annexed to the British Empire and the start of what then became known as the invasion for us. Um, but it's also a place to reflect and go, hey, we're here 250 years later still. Listening to everybody, it's striking that no object, not a shield a spear, this beautiful bronze artwork in the water here that's definitely trying to juggle a bunch of competing historic narratives. None of them can really contain the complexity of what happened here. And that's sort of true of every one of the objects we've encountered, from Tipu's tiger to the Benin bronzes to this. It's Each of them is a doorway, right? Once you see them and you know they exist, You can step through. You can learn more. But really, it's up to us to decide just how much of that history, our history, do we really want to face? What happened here 250 years ago, I think gives us all um, a, a tie to it, but it also gives us that respect and responsibility and really and pride the, the fact that we're we are still here we are still connected to this country despite being ground zero of colonization you know our families have adapted over those you know the last 200 years or so we've survived we're here and we're still a people that are trying to find our way in this world Stuff the British Stole was produced by Zoe Ferguson and myself. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee and Julie Browning is the head of society and culture. Mixing by Martin Peralta. This is the last episode of season one of Stuff the British Stole. But if you've ever walked past an object in a museum and wondered, how did that get there? I would like to hear from you. Maybe there's a doorway there. Stolen at your.abc.net.au. Email me. 
I'd love to know, and maybe we can investigate it in season two. This has been a production of ABC RN, and it was written and created by me. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening. <laughs>